Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here, and we're just beginning a series that we're calling The Songs of Jesus, a series in which we're looking at the shape and story of the book of Psalms, which began last week, which we began last week as we looked at Psalm 1. The, the sort of lead-off track that in many ways sets the tone and trajectory for the, the playlist that follows. The songs that would have shaped Jesus' life and penetrated his heart and that we're hoping over these weeks will, will do the same for us. And, and if you missed it, we saw last week that Psalm 1, that lead-off track, is all about happiness, about what it means to be happy, to be blessed. And how happiness, how being blessed isn't about pursuing a a happiness that we've defined for ourselves, but about going after a happiness, resting in a happiness that God defines on our behalf. As Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, happy are they who are happy in God and happy in God's Word. Because the only place to be blessed in the, in the midst of this broken world is by basking in the goodness of God and the grace of God and the work of God recorded in the Word of God. Well, today, we're going to, to see that Finding happiness, though, in the the work of God, recorded in the Word of God, is ultimately about finding happiness, about being blessed in the Son of God. And we're going to see that as we turn to Psalm 2. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to the lyrics of this second Psalm, Psalm 2, verses 1 to 12. And you can follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. It says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry 
and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we pause this morning to meditate with the psalmist and sing again in our hearts this ancient song, to repeat ourselves the words of your king who you fathered, to whom you you promised the nations. I pray that by the time we leave here today that we would do so with our eyes adjusted, seeing this world as it is and not as it so often appears that we would see above the raging of the nations the reign of the one you placed over them on your heavenly throne who promised that he would one day return and on that day put all wrongs to right. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to start today with a question. Where does our fascination with kings and queens come from? Even in our democratic republic, the the foundation of which was laid with the throwing off of the English throne, and yet in which we're constantly recaptivated by the crown. Why? Just think of the media coverage that was devoted to the royal wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana, when an estimated 750 million people across the world tuned in for the occasion. And more recently, the resurgence as we've fixed our attention on the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge or the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, on Prince William, the heir apparent, and his wife, Catherine, or on Prince Harry and his new wife, Meghan. But why are we so infatuated? They don't even do much, right? I mean, in that constitutional monarch, the power has been invested in the parliament. So why are we constantly mesmerized with the monarchy? And it goes much deeper than just the royal family today. We constantly binge on the royal family of the past whether it's an earlier Elizabeth in the crown or a Victoria who who ruled the 19th century. And then there's all the stories we dream up of kings and queens of lands we've only ever imagined. As if built into the soul of every one of us, even in the face of all, all history's disappointments, Even for us, who who because of the disappointments have so definitively thrown in our hats with democracy, as if built into our souls is still a longing, an anticipation, an expectation that one day one will ascend a throne and finally be the one for whom we've all been waiting which is where I think our fascination, our captivation, our infatuation comes from. This universal longing for one who will do what no one else has done. 
when one day they will ascend the throne and put all wrongs to right. Which is a longing that's reflected in our obsession with the British monarchy. But which for God's people was similarly set in their hearts as far back as their account of their very beginnings. When their first enemy arose, do you remember the story? And God promised that one day one would come to crush that enemy's head. That promise was later reiterated in terms of a king whose scepter would not depart and to whom would be the obedience of the nations. The throne of whose kingdom, God would say even later, would be established forever. One to whom God would be a father and who would be God's son. That promise was first made in terms of a king back in Genesis 49 to the ancestor of a man named David. Later, it was reiterated again in 2 Samuel 7, to that man, David himself. That on David's throne, God would set David's son to do what even David, as a king, didn't end up doing. On the basis of which, the, the, the promise of that promised king, David, may have written the lyrics to this second psalm. A psalm that was then sung out after him at every coronation of every king who followed. So Psalm 2 became the, the psalm that stoked in God's people that universal longing we still feel today, that longing for God's promised king. And, and with every king that didn't fit the bill, reminded them that first, despite the rage of the nations, God reigned. And then second, that because God would reign through God's king, the nations would one day rage no more. That, that first, despite the rage of the nations, God still reigns. And then second, that as God reigns through God's son, God's king, one day the, ration, the nations would rage no more. This is what I want us to look at today as we dive into this psalm. First, as we look at this notion that despite the rage of the nations, God reigns. And here I want you to look with me back at verse 1, and I want you to notice that first word, why. Because this psalm starts with a question where most of us, when we think of these sorts of things, think in terms of statements. It starts with a question where we think in statements. We think this world is out of control, too far gone, that it's irredeemable, irrepressible, incurable, that it's uncontrollable, incontrollable, uncontainable, that it's beyond help and therefore beyond hope. But where we think in statements... This psalm starts with a question. We would say, oh, how the nations rage, and do they ever? But this psalm asks, why? 
Why do they bother doing so at all? That's the tone that you're meant to read this in, sing this in. Why do the nations rage? Why do they bother doing so at all? It's no doubt that they do. But why do they bother doing so at all? Because according to this psalm, it's a lost cause. It'll come to naught. They rage in vain. Despite all the vigor and all the verve, all the racket and all the uproar, that when the dust settles and the day is done, any attempt to throw off the authority of God will get them nowhere. Which again is why where we think in statements, this psalm starts with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And make no mistake, when you you look out over the, the geopolitical conflicts of our day, this isn't just about one nation raging against another. It's never been. It never will be. This is about the the nations raging against God. And notice with me that, that this is not only what the nations have in common, but what unites them together around a common pursuit. That verse 2, the the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is what brings them together whether they know it or not. That the nations, while generally warring against themselves, are only united in their war against God. Now, it's obviously a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Especially since we're sitting a few thousand years after the fact of this being written, that, that in our own day, the gospel has, has even, over the last years, leaked into governments. And so not all nations rage together, and not all always and to the same degree rage against God. There's a grace that's been woven in even to the governments that rule in our age. But in general, this is the way the world goes. Because in general, this is the way we go. Because left to our own devices, we all want God's throne for ourselves. And the first step to getting God's throne is getting God off it. And to do that, we'll even partner with others who are going after that throne for themselves. Why? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Which is why, as a guy who, who grew up in, in, a, in Giants land, as a Giants fan, I'm hoping today that the Saints knock out Philly and that the Chargers knock out the Patriots. And after that, I don't care who wins, because as long as the enemy of my enemy knocks out my enemy, they're my friend. But how much more? How much more do the nations, the kings and rulers of the earth, and for that matter, how much more do we take what we do during the the playoffs 
and make it our MO against God and against God's anointed. You might not think so for yourself. But how often do we bend the rules to our own advantage? How often do we line our pockets or or wish we could line them and do whatever it takes to, to cover our trails and cover our tails? Saying, in effect, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Because this is the heart of the problem, the problem of the human heart. That as we wrote in our doctrinal statement, though made without fault or flaw, the world in which we live was corrupted and the image in which we were made distorted when our foreparents, Adam and Eve, willfully disobeyed God. And that all humanity since, all humanity without exception, has been born corrupt in nature and likewise continues to live both in disobedience to and in conflict with their Creator. This is the story we believe. And it's about you and me. But look at verse 4, because despite the rage of the nations, God still reigns. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. That he can't help but chuckle. That from their little thrones, they think that they're somehow going to get out from under his great big throne. Or even more, that there's a chance that they'd ever be able to take that big throne for themselves. He laughs. That the Lord holds them in derision, it says. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, it doesn't matter in the end what the kings of the earth busy themselves with. That no matter which declare themselves gods or, or simply go about as if they were, what matters is what the one true God does, the king who sits enthroned in heaven. Because despite the rage of the nations and how uncontrollable, uncontainable, irredeemable, irrepressible they appear, at least according to this psalm, God still reigns. This psalm, though, serves as a reminder also, served as a reminder also, of the fact that God does so and has chosen to do so, that God reigns through God's king. And that as much as God reigns through God's king, the nations will one day rage no more. We already have a taste of God reigning through God's king in verse 6, but look at where the psalm then turns in verse 7. Because the word of God declares about his king. The word that God declares about his king are actually recounted by the king himself. And you have to think this, this would have made an impression on him and on his people if these words were recited by the king as part of his coronation every time a succession came around. 
So the king says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And like any good dad, that all I have is yours. And that like any good son, all that is mine you're going to be responsible for. This was the call of the king. And it is quite the the summary, isn't it? I mean, talk about an inheritance, right? all All I'm waiting around for is some tools. Maybe my dad's Bible. But look at this. The inheritance of the king are the nations themselves. The same nations that just a minute ago were raging against him. And not just that, but the ends of the earth. I'd be satisfied with a cottage up north. But God's king is promised the whole kit and caboodle. Not for nothing either, because what it says is that on God's behalf, the king will take those nations from the ends of the earth and break them with a rod of iron like a potter's vessel, if only he asks. And before anybody gets, uh, gets up in arms about this, gets all offended that this is, this is what God's king is commissioned to do on God's behalf. Let's just think for a moment about the alternatives. A lot of people are put off by language like this of retribution and a day of reckoning. But what if you take a day like this out of the equation? If Hitler is never held accountable for the Holocaust, Or the killing fields of Cambodia are never countered. If the serial killers of our world were never satisfied with justice regarding them. Is that a world you'd rather live in? What if we did that just with our justice system today? Just tried it out as an experiment. Just took out the judges and the jails. Is that a world you'd rather live in? A Gotham City in which Joker runs wild. Because nobody thinks, nobody in their right mind thinks that eliminating the police and eliminating the penal system today would actually eliminate the problem of those who deserve to be punished. No, the fact that God reigns through God's king and does so in this way is the only hope, our only hope, that the nations will one day rage no more. You want peace on earth? This is it. This is the only avenue to it. A God who reigns through God's king and will ultimately have God's way. But fascinating, fascinating, especially for those of us 
who were once counted among the nations. This fact that the nations will one day rage no more is not just because God's king will one day call all deeds to account, but because even now God's king is inviting those same nations, those same kings, those same rulers of the earth to take refuge in him. So the king, after declaring God's decree, says in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, he says, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Yet blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the Son. Not as a, some self-serving statement, but because if you want to get good with God, you got to get good with God's Son. Because you may rage today, but you will not rage forever. And you will either be silenced by a rod of iron or be silenced because you've taken refuge in him. Isn't that fascinating? That despite the rage of the nations, God still reigns. But even more, that because God reigns through God's king, the nations in one way or another will one day rage no more, either because they have been shattered like a potter's vessel or because they have turned to serve the one they once raged against. And have heeded the call to bend the knee and to kiss the sun. What a picture, right? What a picture that would have with every candidate that arose to wear that crown after David, that would have reminded them, have stoked in God's people that longing for God's promised king, that maybe this one's going to be it. Maybe this one's going to be it. Whether Solomon or Rehoboam, Abijah or Asa, Jehoshaphat or Jehoram, Ahaziah or Jehoash, Amaziah or Uzziah, Jotham or Ahaz, Hezekiah or Manasseh, or Amos or Josiah, or any of those who were taken into exile, or any of those who pretended to be the one come back later on. Maybe this one will be the one. Because not one of them, though, but not one of them, though, could compare to the expectations they were meant to fulfill. Not as the blessed one described in Psalm 1, ever delighting in God's law, ever meditating day and night. Nor as the one described in Psalm 2, under whom the nations would be blessed. Not one of them, not even close. That is until one arose in the unlikeliest of ways 
from the unlikeliest of circumstances. Born to a teenage girl who was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. When God would declare to be His Son, not at His coronation, but at His baptism. When that king first would identify with his people and the sin that he came to save them from. One against whom the kings of the earth would set themselves and the rulers would gather together when they hung him on a cross. But who afterwards God would raise up and to whom God would give the nations as an inheritance. who has promised himself to someday return. And the vision he's given of one riding on a white horse to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But not before. Those same nations have been first invited to bend the knee and to kiss the Son, and to find refuge in the one they once raged against. What a picture. Because you see, as much as this psalm stoked in the heart of God's people a longing for God's promised king, a fascination and infatuation that far outweighs our own with the British monarchy, this psalm also assured that their longing before and no less ours today would be satisfied with no king less than Jesus. And that as much as God's people found their happiness, their blessing, and, and what it means to be blessed in the record of God's word, that to do that meant that they had to ultimately find it by being blessed under God's greatest king. The one who was no less God's greatest one and only true son. That's what these lyrics of Psalm 2 are all about. Setting up what comes next. And as that sinks in, though, I want to just leave you with two simple questions. What's got your time and who's got your attention? First, what got your time? And what I mean by that is, what are you meditating on? To go back to something we touched on last week. Because there's really only two kinds of people in this world, just as there's only really two kinds of people between Psalms 1 and 2. Those who meditate on God's Word and those who meditate against God's Son. It's the same word used here in Psalm Two that was used back in Psalm 1 that used to describe here those who plot against God and against God's anointed. It's the same word. When he, when he says, when they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what are you meditating on? 
all God's done that's been recorded in God's Word, which centers on the gift of God's Son, or all you're planning to do to get out from under God and from under that same Son. What are you meditating on? And I don't want you to raise your hand. But if you're consumed, if you find yourself consumed, when you're not running and hiding from everybody, if you're consumed with the latter, but you have a longing for the former, let me encourage you, even this week, to find a friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a a mentor. Maybe it's someone else. Find a friend and spill that. Put that on the table. Confess that. And ask that friend, that mentor, the spouse of yours, to walk with you back into God's Word. And if I was just laying out a plan, what I would say, hey, take the next four weeks, one hour a week. It's more than most of us do. And get together with that person. Ask that person to get together with you and walk through a book of the Bible. Something small, maybe Philippians, where it lays out what God's done for us in Christ and how we can reflect that in our own lives. Get back to God's Word because you will only be consumed in life meditating on one of two things. Either meditating on what God's done for you through God's Son is recorded in God's Word, or you will be consumed about how you can twist, how you can play the system to your own advantage. What are you meditating on? Second, who's got your attention? Because it's easy, isn't it? Even for us who've staked our claim on the claim of Christ to lose sight of the one in whom we've put our trust. It's easy. It's easy in this world. Which is what Psalm 2 is meant, at least in one sense, to correct. Because coming out of Psalm 1, a lot of us, I I feel, would be ready to to admit that we're going to We've gone after happiness in all the wrong places and we're ready to recommit to finding happiness in God and in God's Word and in God's Son. But coming out of it, many of us will will the moment after be consumed with the raging of the nations around us. That in this world, we're supposed to find happiness? In this world? Maybe in the next, but not now. Surely not now. We lift our eyes out. But Psalm 2 is meant to call us to lift our eyes further up. That finding happiness in the here and now, amidst the raging of the nations, we can because one reigns over them. It doesn't matter how broken this world is. It doesn't matter how uncontrollable, incontrollable, uncontainable it seems. 
that above it all, above all the kings that reign on earth, there is a king who reigns in heaven and has set his king on his throne and will one day call all to account. So who? Who are we looking at? Not just what's taking up our time, but who's got our attention. That at every headline, as every, as every headline ticks by, every newsreel ticks on, that we would be able to say in the midst of it all, and yet God reigns. And yet God's Son, to every nation that rages against Him, God's Son will bring the rod of iron if they do not in the end turn back to take refuge in Him. What's taken up your time? Who's got your attention? King Arthur is one of those kings that's been made much of. And that he's been made, he's been made so much of that he's turned in our own day into a legend. Some even doubting whether such a character ever existed with his sword in the stone and his knights of the round table. He's quite the character. One of the things, though, one of the the pieces of the lore surrounding him that I find most interesting, though, is the, the tale of what was inscribed on his tomb. Do you know the story? That when... He finally reached the end of his days and was laid to rest. They inscribed on his tomb, written in Latin, these words. Rex quandum rexque futurus. That here lies Arthur, king once and king to be. It's a fiction when it comes to King Arthur. But it's built on the fact that Jesus Christ came and reigned once and will come back to reign again. My hope is that you would be consumed by that. And that your eyes would be lifted to see that amidst the raging of the nations down here, God still reigns through the reign of God's Son up there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how often we are consumed by the ragings around us. How often we are petrified by the peoples plotting against you. But I pray, even 
today as we've looked at this longing that you set in the hearts of your people. This longing that you finally satisfied when you sent your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that today we would have our eyes corrected. And that as much as we look out at those around us and those we sometimes join raging against you, that looking up, we would be those who take refuge in you and in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.